You may have heard the the federal government is fining J.P. Morgan Chase thirteen billion dollars for their role in the financial collapse of two thousand eight. So how does thirteen billion dollars stack up against other fines? Brainstorm. Hey, is this Matt? Yes, it is. Hey, Matt, it's Mike and Ian from How to Do Everything. Hey, how's it going? Good, good. So, uh, wait, you said Brainstorm is the name of the place? Yes. All right. And, and you guys rent videos? Yes, we do. How much does it cost to, to rent a video there? Uh, new releases are $3 for three nights, and all the older titles are $2 for seven days. All right. So, uh, let's say I, I get one for three nights, I return it a day late. What is, what is the fee on that? The fee on the uh, new releases is $1 per day. $1, $1 per day. So we, are, um, we, we learned that the U.S. government is fining J.P. Morgan Chase $13 billion. So we're trying to figure out how long you would have to keep a video out to rack up that kind of fine. Huh. <laughs> so, okay, so you said a dollar a day. Yeah, so for a new release, I, I guess you would have to keep that for an extra 13 billion days. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, okay, so so let's say 13 billion, I'm going to divide that by 365 days in a year. Yeah. So it's going to take 35 million years to rack up a similar fine if I were to say rent, uh, you know, unbreakable and return it, <laughs> turn it late. And that's only like a couple hours long, so really, I mean, you should have plenty of time. <laughs> so what, do you have any movies that are currently outstanding uh, and have been late for a long period of time? Well, for the, for the most part, our policy is that once a movie is a month overdue, we just sort of assume that it has been stolen and is not coming back. Um, like, like, for example, I have... I have an empty box out here right now for the Back to the Future trilogy. Okay. Could I replace that? Of course I could replace that. Is it coming back? No, it's been gone for like <laughs> 11 months. It's not coming back. Wow. So how much, how much did that trilogy cost? The trilogy only cost about $15 originally. Okay, so... So it's, it's not, you know, I'm not going to charge someone, you know, a daily fee for 11 months <laughs> right. if they bring that back. Well, how many copies of the Back to the Future trilogy could we buy with $13 billion if it, if it costs $15? <laughs> Let's figure that out. Probably more than any one person would ever need. So the Back to the Future trilogy costs $15. Okay. The right. total fine for J.P. Morgan Chase is $13 billion. Okay. <laughs> okay, here we go. Here we go. So you you could buy thir you could buy eight hundred sixty six million six hundred sixty six thousand six hundred sixty six copies of the Back to the Future trilogy <laughs> for thirteen billion dollars. Wow! How many people are there in the world? Yeah, yeah, mm. that's that's a lot for everybody. I think it would probably be I think it would probably be a bad idea for the government to accept payment of debts in Back to the Future trilogies if J P Morgan Chase wanted to go that way. I think you will find that the government will not accept that. This is How to Do Everything. I'm Mike. And I'm Ian. And I have a cold. He does. On today's show, we'll tell you how to spit out food politely. And we also have a very special Halloween-themed toilet of the week. But first, a kind of amazing story out of Florida. Two men escaped from the Franklin Correctional Institution last week. Now, uh, they, they've been caught. I guess they're back on their way to jail. But the way they got out, basically they forged documents 
saying that it was time for them to be released. Now, authorities are still trying to figure out how they got the documents, uh, but we thought we'd look at some other great prison breaks. Luis Prada has looked into this. So, Luis, what's, uh, what's one prison break that, that you found amazing? Uh, the one I find the most interesting is uh, this guy by the name of Pascal Payet. Um, Pascal was arrested and sentenced to 30 years in a French prison. Now, th- this prison had a very particular flaw that, that Pascal knew how to exploit, and that was it had a sky over it. Okay, uh, yeah. Now, what, Payet, what uh, Pascal did was in 2001, uh, he just wanted to get out, so he uh, corrob- corroborated with his buddy to land a helicopter in the middle of the prison, and then he just stepped in it, and then it flew away. It seems like the kind of thing, like the guards, you could, you're not really sneaking a helicopter in there. How do they do that? What's even more amazing about that story is that that's not the last time he did that. He did that exact thing two more times later. What? Yeah. <laughs> he roamed free for a couple of years after that. He was captured, sent back to prison. They actually put him in an uh, in an isolation chamber. He didn't. He was cut off from everybody and everything. Didn't see the light of day at all for for months at a time. Somehow, they still his buddy still landed a helicopter in the prison for the third time, got him out from his isolation chamber, and then they flew off. Hey, can you tell us uh, the story of the Stalag Luft three escape? Yeah, Stalag Luft three. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's one of the most famous prison escapes ever. It was the inspiration for the classic film uh, The Great Escape. Uh, these Prisoners, which is made up of American and British soldiers, started digging these tunnels, uh, codenamed Tom, Dick, and Harry. Um, and but there were a lot of things in their way that were preventing them from making just an easy escape. It wasn't just you know hop over a fence and you're free. Uh, they had to uh, go through, for example, uh, the microphones. There were microphones lined all around the fence that would detect even the slightest little bit of vibration. So what they did to get around that was literally they dug 30 deep. 30-foot deep holes below it to get around it. Um, for faster traveling through these very long tunnels that they had to dig, they created these railway systems these that they would kind of lie down on them and on um, these like little rail carts, and they would move back and forth between uh, the tunnels. Wow. And then, of course, they're not going to get that much air down there, so they even created ventilation shafts. These are like ventilation systems made of just junk that they had lying around, bed parts and like hockey sticks, for some reason they had hockey sticks and ping pong paddles and tin cans, and they just created an air shaft for themselves so they can breathe. I mean, it's astounding the amount of things that not the Nazis apparently just didn't even notice were missing. There were like 4,000 bedboards and, and 90 beds, entire beds just disappeared, and they never even noticed it. And like 54 tables and 30 shovels and 1,000 feet of electrical wire. I mean, these guys were basically... MacGyver's before MacGyver was MacGyver. You also write about Alcatraz, you know, this supposedly unescapable prison that wasn't always the case. No, not at all. And, and uh, Frank Morris, he and about four other friends of his uh, in the prison came together and they created this plan. So what it started off with realizing that behind their cells was a utility corridor. Uh, in this utility corridor was a ventilation shaft that led to the roof. So they uh, wanted to drill a hole into their cells that led to that, into that corridor that led to the, the, the shaft. So what they did was they stole drill bits from the prison workshop, and then they took the motor of a vacuum cleaner. They somehow fused those two things together as if through magic and came up with 
a drill. But of course, a drill is extremely loud. It's going to cause a ruckus. It's going to call the attention of guards. One of the guys that made the escape had an accordion. While they were drilling, he would play this obnoxious accordion as loud as possible to mask the sound. That accordion would then come back later in the story when they were trying to make uh, a raft to escape. Because obviously Alcatraz is surrounded by the waters of the uh, Pacific Ocean. Uh, so they took 50 raincoats, that prison-issued raincoats, stitched them together, and they used the accordion as a an inflation device. Uh, like so they, yeah, exactly. They 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 filled it up with air with this uh, accordion that you know it has apparently multiple uses of accordions. I, I think they got to take away the accordions. No more accordions in prison. Oh yeah, I think prisons have learned their lessons from now. I think overall, we should just have no accordions. Period. But the the most ridiculous part of the whole escape, and it's one of those things that you hear it and you go, I can't believe that worked. It's so stupid. I can't believe it. Two of the guys, they're called the, uh, I think the Anglin brothers, uh, they created these very crude paper mache facsimiles of their own heads. Um, <laughs> they're like horrible, horrible looking uh, heads, but in the dark in a prison, they just put the heads in their beds on top of their pillows. They use real hair from the prison barbershop, so it kind of looked authentic. And uh, they put the heads in there, and then they just made their escape. And the guards that came to do uh, cell checks were none the wiser. They didn't. They didn't uh, catch on to it. So it sounds like, based on your research, that um, I mean, short of having a helicopter pull you out of the yard, mm-hmm. a lot of this stuff is just kind of uh, ingenuity and reusing materials that are part of the kind of prison environment mattresses, bedboards, hair. It's basically when you're trapped in uh, in these walls for, you know, probably the rest of your life, you want nothing but to get out. That's your main drive. So you will do and use anything to get out. Well, this has been great. Thanks, Luis. Yeah, no problem, guys. We got a note uh, from Asher. Asher says he needs some help. Now, Asher says we could we could reach him uh, in his teacher, Mr. Mundy's office. This is Asher. Hey, Asher. It's Mike uh, and Ian calling. How's it going? Good. How's it going there? Pretty good. Pretty good. So what can we help you with? So I had a question. Um, how can you spit out food politely, like if you're at a dinner party and you really don't like it? Well, it t- why do you need to know this? Have you, have you been in this situation? Uh, yeah, so I go to some a lot of bar mitzvah parties and parties similar, and they don't always serve the best food. So, have, what's tell us about a recent experience you had? Um, so I was at this uh, this bar mitzvah and they had um, these black bean burgers, and I strongly disliked them. Mm-hmm. So what did what did you do? Um, I walked over to a trash can with my hand over my mouth and spit it out. <laughs> I didn't feel it was exactly polite. Were you spotted? Do you think? Yeah. <laughs> really? I, I think I was. There okay, but... It was a high-class party, too, so... Mm, mm. All so, right. Well, is it... Now, okay, well, is this a problem, you think, with the food that's being offered at these parties, or are you kind of a picky eater? I'm a pretty picky eater, so. Yeah. What do you like to eat? Typical stuff. Burgers, french fries. What don't you like? What are things... Like, give us your top five don't uh, feed me's. Like, sauerkraut. Okay. okay. Artichokes. All right. Uh, 
I don't like milk chocolate, which is weird. Oh. There are very few milk chocolates that I said, hmm, I'm glad I had that afterwards. All right. All right. Well, uh, I think we're going to try and help you out. All right. Thank you. You know who could help is uh, Gail Simmons, uh, a judge on Top Chef. Gail, uh, what should Asher do? I would say, you know, that's why you should always have your napkin in your lap. Um, if you're at a dinner party, a seated dinner party, and your napkin's in your lap, um, you know, the best way to do it discreetly is to pass your napkin over your mouth um, and spit it into your napkin if you have to, if it's really that bad. As if you were just gently wiping your mouth, you need to be very discreet. Mm-hmm. Um, try not to make faces, and, um, and that would be the only way to do it. If you're at a cocktail party, the same thing would apply. Um, always take a cocktail napkin from beside the cocktail appetizer or canapé. That, that, for me, the, the moment where the uh, server comes around with the uh, hors d'oeuvres and uh, the napkins, that's always a trouble spot for me because I usually, at a cocktail party, have a drink in my hand, and then I, so I only have one hand left with which to get food and a napkin, and it gets very awkward. Yes. So my advice about that is take the napkin first. Uh-huh. And then you can place the food on the napkin. Okay. Now and then you can bring it up to your mouth kind of like on the napkin. But that is the, you know, conundrum for the ages about cocktail okay. parties. So, so let's get Asher back. He's still in Mr. Mundy's office. Okay, Asher, you heard Gail's advice. And you have in front of you some food to try this out, right? Yes, I do. Okay, what do you got? I have a uh, homemade muffin. <laughs> okay. I try it with. It, now, is uh, is Mr. Mundy nearby? Um, he's outside of the office. Can you, do you think I I would love to get his take on how smoothly you're pulling this off? Can you can you go grab him real quick? Yeah. All right. Hold on. Hello. Hello. Hi. How are you? I'm Jason Mundy. Hey, I'm Mike. And Hi, I, Mike. and I'm Ian. It's good to meet you, Mr. Mundy. Hi. How are you? Good. So I guess whenever uh, you can go ahead and tell Asher to to go ahead whenever he's ready. He just he just did it, and he had his head up when he was chewing, um, eyes open, didn't look disgusted, smiled a little, said interesting, and then put his napkin to his mouth like he was wiping his mouth, and that's when I think he spit. Oh, so you couldn't tell that he was spitting out food into his napkin? Well, knowing that I'm supposed to be looking for it, I could tell. But if I were at a <laughs> dinner party, I might not be able to tell. All right. You kind of winged it there saying it was interesting. That seems like a, a good move. I didn't want to say blech and then make it look like nothing happened. Yeah. Well, now, is this? do you think this is bar mitzvah ready, this new move? I think so. All right, man. All right. Thank you, guys. Uh, have a nice day. We heard from uh, Rebecca. She says she listens to How to Do Everything while touching up scratches on wooden doors, elevators, and wall panels in office buildings in the middle of the night. Rebecca, these next 15 seconds are for you. What kind of office do you think uh, she's doing this at? That there There are claw marks in the office doors. In the elevators, there are there, someone has been scratching their way out. Do you think it's a wear office? We are still collecting your toilets of the week. Shelly, 
Tell us about your toilet. Um, my toilet of the week nomination is it's in a restaurant here in Toronto that's called The Keg. Oh, and yeah. The Keg is like a steak and fish house with salad bar, you know, the kind of thing. Um, but it's in a huge old mansion that was built in the 19th century um, right. in what used to be Toronto's Millionaire's Row. And it's supposed to be haunted, this mansion, and specifically the bathroom. Specifically the bathroom is haunted? Specifically the ladies' room is supposed to be haunted. Let me ask you this. Is it okay if we put some scary sounds in here? <laughs> Just, you know, from this, this point forward? Yes. Okay. I think you gotta. Why, why is it haunted? <laughs> well, there's, there's a story of, it's right beside the grand staircase that goes from the downstairs to the upstairs. And there are the usual, like, running children ghosts that go up and down the stairs. Mm, sure. And then it's supposedly the maid of the house hung herself from the, the balustrade, and she, she died there. Uh, she had, um, supposedly she was so struck with grief when the mistress of the house died. So she's, it's right next to that. Okay. I, I guess I feel like if I were a ghost and I had all the powers to move through walls, that... I wouldn't choose, I guess, to spend eternity in the bathroom. <laughs> I think, I don't know if there was a bathroom there before. Like, maybe she was already there. She just sort of stuck and there. And so it was just like, oh, damn, they put the toilets in. Like, <laughs> yeah. I guess that's what I'm doing now. Well, so you, you've used this restroom? I have. And was it spooky? You know what? It just kind of was spooky. There's like a window seat in it. And so you can sit there and hang out for a while if you want to. Okay. Um, but the... The thing that I didn't like was looking in the mirror. Like there was something about looking in the mirror that felt wrong. No. But you didn't. You didn't witness anything paranormal while you were in there. I didn't. I just felt creeped out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but some of the stories are of like the locks on the bathrooms opening and closing while someone's uh, you know using yeah. the facility. So that would be um, alarming. But now Even I if wonder. Weren't a paranormal. Isn't there also maybe a benefit to having a haunted ladies' room in that often the longest lines form outside the women's restroom? Maybe there's a, a an efficiency factor here that the ghost is keeping things moving. <laughs> well, in that case, they should do more hauntings in sports arenas. Well, congratulations, Shelley. You have this week's Toilet of the Week. Hooray! That does it for this week's show. What'd you learn, Ian? Well, I learned that uh, an accordion is uh, more more useful than you'd think. You can use it to break out of prison. Yeah, you can uh, cover up uh, the sound of anything you don't want people to hear. Oh, yeah. Uh, you can inflate uh, a, maybe a, a beach toy with it. I think probably the time it would be most useful to use an accordion uh, to escape would be when someone is playing the accordion. You, I imagine, imagine the scene though. These, the you're in Alcatraz. Yeah, you're busting out. Imagine if it had been a saxophone, and so like it, you know, the prison is just like you imagine, and then all of a sudden there's just this, this sweet, sweet saxophone groove. It would almost be too smooth 
to escape. Yeah. You know what? I'll stick around. Yeah. If it's going to be this smooth in here. Well, uh, if you noticed that today's episode, uh, you probably noticed it was late. Uh, by a couple, by a week. Uh, you probably noticed that um, it was it was terrible. There were flaws throughout. For for one, Ian's voice. Yeah. He has a cold. Yeah. Which uh, I think is all related yeah. to this. Uh, this is our first show without our uh, beloved uh, founding, really, yeah. producer, Blythe Haga. Obviously, this show wouldn't exist if it weren't for Blythe. Uh, and we thank her, and we wish her all the best. And... Uh, but you don't imagine she'll ever hear this because now that she's done, yeah, why would why she would listen? She? Yeah. So, really, we could say anything. Yeah, it's, that's true. She wouldn't hear it. Blythe, I stole your stapler. Technical direction this week, as always, from Lorna White. Our intern is Stephen Tobias, who, uh, unlike many of our interns, actually uh, worked for us. Yeah, he's actually here. He's a real person. Get us your questions at howto at npr.org. And visit our website, howtodoeverything.org. I'm Ian. And I'm Mike. Thanks. Thanks, Blythe.